You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Other than the Bible, the best-selling books in the world are the works of Agatha Christie, the queen of murder mysteries. And in recent years, true crime TV shows and podcasts have exploded in popularity, especially programs about serial killers. I think these programs are popular because people like puzzles, right, intellectually. And also, I think if we're honest, it's because we're drawn to things that are sinful and perverse, and we're kind of fascinated by them. And I think that this is a fascinating subject for many people because most of our lives have not been touched by murder. Uh, My family has been touched by murder. Uh, In 2007, my uncle uh, was murdered on the north side of Houston. His killers escaped justice. My grandparents went to their grave without any justice being administered, and his death still impacts all of us who have survived him. Now, don't get me wrong, I mean, I'll, I'll watch my fair share of murder mystery programs and they're reasonably entertaining, but I want you to remember this morning, murder isn't only the stuff of fiction. Murder is a terrible reality that befalls many people in our world today. And today as we come to Genesis chapter four, we're gonna see the first murder, which is actually gonna begin a bleak period in human history that is marked by shocking moral degradation to the point where God unleashes a worldwide judgment. We'll see in the next few weeks. And we're just going to start to see this degradation today. But this morning, we're going to see four points. First, we're going to see that a failure to love God leads to an unacceptable sacrifice. Second, we're going to see that wicked anger leads to horrific murder. Third, we're going to see that society develops apart from God And even though it develops, it degrades into violent and evil revelry. And then finally, we're going to see that uh, God intervenes by forming a new people for his own possession. So let's start with our first point in which we see that a failure to love God leads to an unacceptable sacrifice. God made a good creation. God made humanity, his image bearers, to be his deputies on earth. He set them in the garden, a place of worship, splendor, and delight. But humanity rebelled against God. And so God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden to the outside world, which became an inhospitable place because of sin. And it is there that Adam and Eve have their first child. If you've got a Bible, look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. After Eve gives birth to Cain, she says something which has been much debated over the centuries. And I really don't have the time to fully examine this verse right now. But I'm going to tell you that my conclusion here is that what Eve says is very self-exalting. She declares that she has generated a child. In fact, the verb translated gotten here sometimes means created in Hebrew. And yes, Eve acknowledges God helped me, but I think her words are really all about herself as a creator. And we're left here with the impression that Eve still wants to be like God. 
And that foreshadows the trouble that is to come. Verse 2, And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Adam had forfeited his duties in the garden, but God gave him other responsibilities. Uh, humanity was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And the first family starts to do this. They grow in number. And when Cain and Abel are old enough, they begin to work. And their labor reflects God's words to Adam. Cain works the ground to produce food like Adam was sentenced to do after the fall. And Abel works as a shepherd, subduing the beasts of the earth. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, we said before that the Garden of Eden was like the first temple. Now, of course, at this point, humanity can enter the garden no longer, and yet we're going to see here in chapter 4 that man is still able in some way to approach God's presence and interact in a fairly direct way with him. My take on this is, is that I think while Adam and Eve went east of Eden, they probably didn't go too far away from the garden. And periodically, they probably approached the garden's entrance to make offerings to God, just like Israelites later would approach the temple and offer sacrifices on the altar outside the temple building. Well, now the time comes for Cain and Abel to bring offerings before the Lord, and they bring offerings that reflect their work. Cain brings plants and vegetables that he has harvested from the ground. And Abel kills one of his sheep and brings it to the Lord. Verse 4. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. God views these two offerings quite differently. God is pleased with Abel's and God rejects Cain's. And this visibly infuriates Cain. Now, why does this happen? Why does God accept Abel's offering and reject Cain's? I've heard this passage taught many times over the years. And usually it's argued that Abel's offering is better than Cain's because Cain offered only plants and Abel offered an animal's life. Abel made a sacrifice of blood. And Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So it's often concluded Abel's offering was an acceptable sacrifice, but Cain's wasn't. Anybody in here ever heard this interpretation before? Yes. Um, now certainly this interpretation is built on biblical truth. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And when we sin, we owe a life. Either we're going to die for it or we have to lean into God's gracious provision that he has always allowed people a substitute who dies for us. In the Old Testament, God covered the sins of Israelites as they offered animals who died for their sins. This anticipated the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, who died for our sins, not just to cover them, but to fully cleanse all who believe in him. And so, yes, if the purpose of the sacrifice in Genesis 4 is about addressing sin then life is required. Blood would be necessary, and only Abel's sacrifice would measure up. But not every sacrifice in the Old Testament is about sin. Later, in the book of Leviticus, God gives Israel five types of sacrifices that they are to offer. 
Four of them relate to sin and guilt, and they all involve animal sacrifice. But one sacrifice did not have anything to do with animals. Leviticus chapter 2 describes the grain offering. A sacrifice made of flour from crushed grain and olive oil from the produce of the ground. And this grain offering was not offered because of anything to do with sin or guilt. The grain offering was offered as an expression of gratitude and worship to God. And in Hebrew, the term that describes the grain offering was mincha. And when we look at Genesis 4, the offerings brought by Cain and Abel are both called mencha. That is to say, Cain and Abel are not here trying to offer sin offerings. They have come offering offerings of gratitude and worship to God, which God later said could come from the produce of the ground. So I don't think the problem with Cain's sacrifice had anything to do with the fact that he brought vegetables rather than an animal. So what was the problem? I think there are two. First, the issue was not the sacrifice, but the person offering it. This should not surprise us. Because in the Old Testament, even though there is so much ceremony, God was never pleased with empty formalism. God didn't want a sacrifice if there wasn't a repentant heart to accompany it. That's why we read things like Psalm 51:16. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Now certainly God had ordered Israel to sacrifice to him. But it wasn't that sacrifice was an end in itself. What God was after was a heart that revered him, that repented before him. And that reverential heart would want to obey God through sacrifice. And that would be acceptable. But without the right heart posture, God wanted nothing to do with empty formalism. That's why God says to those who honor him with their lips, but whose heart is far from him, in Isaiah 1.12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. God is disgusted by people who don't truly love him going through the motions of worship. And friends, I think that's the root issue here in Genesis 4. Abel had a right view of God, so his offering was acceptable. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel came in faith, believing God to be good, holy, and true, trusting God. And so God accepted Abel's offering, which testifies to the truth of Hebrews 11.6, that without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And that was Abel. His brief life, his single recorded act testifies powerfully to how God views faith. But what about Cain? He did not share Abel's view of God. Cain did not trust God. 1 John 3 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Cain joined the serpent's rebellion against God. Cain was in unrepentant evil. So when he comes before God with an offering of thanks, it's false. The outward act doesn't reflect the inward reality. He is far from God. And that's why his offering was rejected and why Abel's was accepted. Abel had faith. Cain didn't. Now the second issue that distinguished these sacrifices is found in Genesis 4. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, it was pointed out gardening takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of energy to get produce from the ground. Cain worked hard. He harvested his crop, and he put it to many uses. Oh, this part went to feeding him, and this part to feeding his family, and this part to who knows what. And oh, that part can go to God. What did Abel give? The firstborn of the flock. It wasn't like Abel looked at his sheep and said, well, these I'll eat and these I'll shear and these I'll give to God. Abel gave the best, the choicest to God. And beyond that, we're told he offered the fat portions, the best part of the best animal. This also reveals the heart attitudes of Cain and Abel. For Cain, this offering was just some, something he had to do as a part of life. For Abel, honoring God was central to his life. And that's what God valued the sacrifice that best reflected and understood God's true worth. Now, what should we take from this? Well, today we don't offer sin offerings anymore. Hebrews 10 says, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Jesus died once to, to buy his people's forgiveness, to bring us into a relationship with God, to give us a new life. And yet the New Testament still uses the language of sacrifice to describe services that should be rendered by believers today. Now these sacrifices are not trying to atone for sin. These are expressions of gratitude and worship to God, just like the offerings in chapter 4. 1 Peter 2.15 says, You are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what are these spiritual sacrifices? Well, let's look at some passages from the New Testament that talk about sacrifice. In Philippians 4.18, Paul speaks of a financial gift that supported his ministry as being a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So financial giving is a form of sacrifice that believers today engage in. Hebrews 13.15 says, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the, lip, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We're to sacrifice to God by praising him, by speaking words that acknowledge and glorify him. And beyond that, we are to render service for him. We are to show kindness and hospitality to those around us who are in need. Now let us consider our lives in light of these things. And as we do, the question is not, do we do them? Do we give to the church or missionaries? Do we praise God? Do we sometimes do kind deeds? That's not the question any more than the question was, did Cain bring an offering to God? He did, and it was not acceptable. The real issue is not, are we doing these things? That should be a given. Of course we should, and if we aren't, we need to repent and do it. But the real issue is, what do these areas of life show about our priorities? 
How do they reflect our love for God? Cain gave an unremarkable amount of his abundant harvest. Abel gave his best. What Cain gave was unremarkable in its loss. What Abel gave was painful in its loss. But Abel judged that loss was worth it when he considered the greatness of God. Do we give our money or time in a way that's just a token? To check a box like Cain did? Or do we give in a way that is meaningfully sacrificial like Abel did? And I'm not saying, well, you know, give to a measure in which you can't provide your family. That would be sin. First Timothy 5 says you better provide for your family. But friends, when we give money and time and energy, it should be meaningfully sacrificial or else it doesn't do anything. They may say, well, hey, it helps the bottom line here at church. Okay, I probably shouldn't say this, but in the grand scheme of things, our bottom line is pretty immaterial. What really matters is your walk with God and how sacrifice in these areas reveals your heart towards God. In the same way, with what measure do we share with those who lack? With what measure do we show hospitality to the saints? Minimalistically, because, oh, well, you know, I should do this every once in a while. Or sacrificially, because we really love God and other people. Do we praise God only ever at church? This is about the easiest place on earth where it is to praise God, right? Or do we praise God before unbelievers? in hostile environments where it might cost you something. Friends, are we grudging in the sacrifices the New Testament describes? And if we're failing in these areas, how then can we hope to offer God what he's really owed? Romans 12.1 says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Believers, Jesus gave all for us. It is only right that we give all for him, that we live in body and mind always devoted to him, at work, at home, always seeking to obey. How are we doing with this? Are there areas of life where we are resisting letting God govern in our, in our lives? Where we are saying, hey, this part is mine, God. Stay out. I like this sin. I like this disobedience. I don't want to repent. Friend, if there are areas in your mind right now that as you look at your life and you're like, yeah, this is me, I, I call on you. Sacrifice that to the Lord. And today, if you're here thinking, hey, you know what? Who is this God? It's my life. I prayed a prayer. I'm good, right? Why are you here? What good do you think it's going to do to sit here and listen to a sermon and sing songs and say amen if your heart is far from God? That's not pleasing God. That's disgusting to God. Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Abel loved God much. And what he gave showed it. And Cain didn't. And what he gave showed it. What to our lives and the services and the offerings that we make in honor of Jesus show about us. And if you see deficiencies today, will you repent? Will you make changes? Or will you confirm your lack of love through indifference? Well, we come now to our second point as wicked anger gives way to horrific murder. 
Cain is furious with God. But God is gracious to Cain. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. This desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God says, hey, you are in a dangerous spot. Sin is like a predatory animal hoping to leap upon you and dominate you. But God offers Cain a way out. God is willing to enable Cain to turn away from this terrible path. Will Cain heed God's warning? Does he admit his sacrifice was deficient? Does he repent of his unrighteous anger towards God? No. He gives himself over to sin. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain lures Abel into the field and murders him, just like Genesis 3.15 predicted. The offspring of the serpent hates the offspring of the woman. The children of the devil hate the children of God. So Cain murders Abel. And our author Moses reminds us again and again in this passage, Abel was his brother. It's bad enough to kill premeditatively, but murdering your own brother, it's unspeakable evil. But this is where unchecked sin leads. Sin brings forth death. Sin destroys not just the sinner, but innocent people too. And so Abel becomes the first person to die. He dies by murder. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? Chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God approached asking, Where are you? Not because God didn't know, but God gives sinners an opportunity to confess. And now God gives Cain that opportunity. How will Cain respond? When chapter 3, Adam responded with evasion and blaming others, Cain does something worse. He just lies to God. Look at verse 9. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain denies knowing his brother's whereabouts, and he sneers at God with this question, denying any responsibilities for Abel. But you know, through this book, it's God who determines what our responsibilities are, not man. Cain here is just evidencing total scorn towards God. And God won't indulge this contempt, so he exposes Cain. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. See, God knew what Cain did. And God expresses outrage just like he did in chapter 3. What have you done? Because this sin is horrific in magnitude. Because murder is unique. Leviticus 17.11 says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God says when blood is unjustly spilled, it's like that shed blood, that severed life cries out for justice. Not audibly, this isn't something we hear, but God hears it, and God will avenge it. And later in Genesis, God tells humanity to avenge murder, and we see why he cares about this so much. Genesis 9.6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. See, human life is innately valuable to God because we reflect Him in so many ways. So to kill an image bearer of God is sin that deserves death. And Cain has done this. So God imposes judgment. 
And like in chapter 3, the judgment is tailored to Cain's sin. Look at verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Because Cain spilled his brother's blood and the ground absorbed it, now from the ground comes a curse on Cain. Cain will no longer harvest crops. His labor, his, self, his sense of self-identity now end. Up to now, he had been defined as a worker of the ground. Now he must find a new way to live and eat. He will become a scavenger or a hunter. Beyond that, verse 12, God says, You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain, who murdered his brother, now is expelled from his family. Now he is a fugitive. He must roam homelessly because of his crime, wandering forever. Now this gets Cain's attention. He didn't care what God said before, but now he hears, and he's sorrowful. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. 2 Corinthians 7 tells us godly grief produces repentance, and worldly grief produces death. Which grief does Cain have? Does he mourn his brother? Does he acknowledge his sin? Does he have a right view of God? No. He's not repentant. This is not godly grief. He's just sad because he's been judged. But the judgment could have been worse. God could have killed him on the spot. But God graciously responds to Cain. God spares him immediate death. Now as Cain looks at the punishment, losing agriculture, wandering aimlessly, forfeiting access to God, he won't be able to come and bring offerings anymore because he's out there wandering somewhere. What is it that stings Cain the most? The fear that someone, maybe Adam or one of his other siblings, might pursue him and kill him, might do to him what he did to his brother. He doesn't want that. Now God is gracious to Cain. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. We don't know what this mark was, but God acted to spare Cain's life. An act of mercy for an unrepentant murderer. Now what should we learn here? In the Ten Commandments, God said in Exodus 20, You shall not murder. But God's opposition to murder didn't start with the Ten Commandments. God opposed murder from the very beginning. And Cain didn't need a verbal command from God to know he shouldn't kill. Because murder is transparently wrong. Nature testifies to that. That's why every nation on earth today and almost every society in world history criminalized murder, no matter what the religious background was, because everybody intuitively understands murder is wrong. In fact, the New Testament tells us it's satanic. John 8, 44 says Satan is a murderer from the beginning. Here is evidence. Cain belongs to the evil one. He does the same deeds as his spiritual father. And the New Testament tells us anyone who murders gives proof positive that he doesn't know God. 1 John 3.15 says no murderer has eternal life in him. And while murderers may sometimes escape justice in this world, the Bible tells us God will avenge every murder in the end. 
Jesus himself says in Revelation 22:15 that murderers are outside the New Jerusalem. The final destiny of all murderers who do not repent is hell. And yet as terrible as murder is, it's not unforgivable. The King David arranged a murder. He repented, and he was severely chastised, but God forgave him. Paul helped murder Stephen. But after he came to Christ, Paul wrote, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If Jesus can pardon a murderer like Paul, he can forgive all our sins too. Now this morning we might assume that everybody here has never taken a life, but I don't think we should assume anything. So if you have killed... I solemnly warn you that your soul stands in peril before God's justice. And mercy and pardon are available if you turn from your sin and cast yourself upon Jesus' mercy. He is God and man. He has died for your sins and risen. Now maybe today you say, hey, why should God pardon murderers if they have faith? As a relative of a murder victim, I understand that feeling. But friends, we must not begrudge God's grace to anyone. We've all done terrible things in our lives. And if we want God's grace for ourselves, we should be willing to extend and and hope for God's grace to others who have need. Now maybe you say, well, yeah, but my sins aren't bad. They aren't like a murder. What does Jesus say? Matthew 5, 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says, ultimately, God wants more than that we abstain from murder. God wants us to forego sinful anger. And Jesus says, not just murder, but sinful anger, seething, vengeful anger, deserves death and hell. Because Romans 12 tells us, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Only God has the right to wrath and vengeance. And yet, when we harbor sinful anger, we put ourselves in God's seat. We get angry because we feel like we've been wronged. And we say, well, whoever wronged us is an evildoer. And the Bible tells us evildoers should die. And so our anger is basically saying, I judge this person as deserving death. That's why Jesus equates sinful anger with the murder command. Because it is this heart posture of determining that someone else is not fit to live, that stands behind every act of murder. Now this same heart posture plagues all of us from time to time. Most people don't act on it violently. Some do. But whether we act or not, the root of every murder is this evil anger. And if we relish that, we stand guilty. That's why 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Because even apart from our actions, the heart posture of someone who murders and who hates is indistinguishable. And so that heart condition deserves the punishment that fits the crime of murder. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying sinful anger is in every respect equal to murder. It isn't. Actually, killing is much worse than just being angry. But what Jesus wants us to know is that our evil, angry desires are much worse than we think. And they by themselves deserve the full measure of the penalty for murder. 
Now let us examine ourselves. Are we holding out furious anger against anybody? Is there anybody as we sit here that we say, hey, I'd really like to see them get what's coming to them? Friend, if you see somebody's face in your mind right now, that is the Spirit showing that you have an unclean way in you. Matthew 5, Jesus says, reconcile with somebody if there is an interpersonal problem. Is that something you need to do today? Maybe your hatred is not towards a believer because there he talks about if a brother has something against you. Maybe you say, well, it's not a believer. Well, still, Paul says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. As much as you can, make peace and leave the rest to God. Or maybe you say, yeah, but my issues are with someone who's dead or the public figure, and I can't get to them to reconcile. Friend, let it go. Give your sin to Christ before you become embittered and poisoned by it. Because Jesus doesn't just tell us that we must love God. He also says in Matthew 22, we must love our neighbor as ourselves, And we can't love anybody that we want to see destroyed. So we've got to let go of our hate. Because as Jesus' people, we are to be living sacrifices totally dedicated to him in word, thought, and deed. Right, we come now to our third point, in which we see society developing apart from God and morally degrading. Look at verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, God told Cain to wander as a fugitive, but here he settles down. He's not wandering anymore. He establishes a family. He's not alone anymore. He builds a city. In antiquity, cities were walled. He's not afraid of people anymore. He's securing himself. He's not trusting that mark God put on him anymore. God showed grace to Cain. Cain responds by rebelling against God's judgment. Now, let me address this issue of Cain's wife here. This is an issue opponents of the Bible sometimes point to and say, oh, where did Cain's wife come from? Because up to this point, we've only met Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. But Genesis 5.4 says Adam had other sons and daughters. Moses is not telling us about every person in the first family. He's only highlighting a few people who prove significant. So Cain's wife is his sister. You might say, well, that's disgusting. That indeed Leviticus 18 forbade such a thing in Israel. But that law had not yet been given. And based on how God organized humanity as descending from Adam and Eve, it could not be otherwise. So through his sister, Cain fathered Enoch. This is not the famous Enoch of chapter 5. We'll talk about him next week. Verse 18, we now see the beginning of the lineage of Cain. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahuyael, and Mahuyael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And here Moses pauses. Because Lamech is a great representative of what the lineage of Cain is all about. Lamech shows what Cain produced. Verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other is Zillah. God created marriage in Genesis 2 as one man and one woman. Now Lamech redefines marriage by taking a second wife. And this begins the practice of polygamy, which we see throughout the ancient world in the Old Testament. But friends, God was not okay with polygamy. Polyamory today is not okay. Because what God called very good in the creation, what he said was tov, which reflected his character and design, was the marriage of one man and one woman. 
And God restricted sexuality to that kind of marriage. And that's what God called very good. That alone reflects God's character. And so what Lamech does here, and the other polygamists of the Old Testament do, is not good. It is sin. And that's why in the Old Testament, polygamous marriages usually generate terrible trouble. Because sin begets destruction. Well, here Lamech takes two wives. And we're going to see in a minute, Lamech is not a positive example. And indeed, here he becomes the father of sexual immorality. But through his wives, Lamech produces offspring. Look at verse 20. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Here we see civilization is developing. Uh, we have agricultural industries popping up and music and people manipulating metal. There's progress, right? The rise of culture. But friends, the rise of culture does not always precipitate morality. And we're reminded of this again as we see Lamech in verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now, what's Lamech talking about here? He's, he has this little poem, and it's about the fact he killed somebody. Now, Lamech says he killed in self-defense. And in the Old Testament, killing in self-defense was permitted. We see this in Exodus 22, verse 3. But even if Lamech is telling the truth, this was a justified homicide, there's evidence here that things are really not good at this point in history. Society is becoming increasingly violent. Think about it. Here's a guy who comes along and does violence to Lamech, and Lamech is ready to do violence back to him. Cain was the first to spill blood. He won't be the last. But look at Lamech's attitude about what he's done. He has taken a life. He has killed an image bearer of God, and he is untroubled by it. In fact, he boasts in this passage about the violence he's done. That's what he does in verse 24 when he says, Well, if God protected Cain with sevenfold vengeance, anybody who tries to avenge themselves on me will get a worse fate. Either he's thinking God will defend him 11 times more than he defended Cain, or maybe he's saying, I'm so mighty, if anybody tries anything, I will unleash a horrific bloodbath upon them. Now what do we see here? Yes, society has progressed through the centuries. Air conditioning is nice. Flush toilets are nice. Antibiotics are good, right? Things have improved artistically and scientifically. We are more with it than our ancestors, I suppose. Yes, Cain's descendants advanced culture. But as they're described, what don't we see here? The name of the Lord. Cain rejected God and so did his descendants. And the result was moral anarchy. And we're going to see where this leads the next few weeks. But just as Cain's society reveled in evil through increasing violence, friends, our society is doing the same thing. Let me point out a few ways in which this is true. First, there has been a normalization of suicide and self-harm. There is a growing sense that these are natural outcomes for those who struggle with mental and spiritual problems today. 
Many obituaries talk about people dying as a result of depression. Friends, depression is not a terminal disease. And suicide is not the inevitable outcome of depression. I remember in 2014 when Robin Williams killed himself. All these people went on social media and said, you're free now, genie, a reference to the movie Aladdin. Is that right? Is suicide a liberating act? It's terribly destructive. It ends a valuable life made in God's image. It destroys the lives of those around the victim. Friends, we will only see suicide as good if we have bought the lie that human life has no value. But God sees every life as valuable because every life reflects him. And so today, if you struggle with self-harm, seek help. Your life is worth fighting for. It matters to God and it matters to us. Second, there has been a normalization of abortion. I've said a lot about this over the years. I won't belabor the point. But unborn human life meets all criteria for biological life, which are possessing cells, responding to external stimuli, development, self-regulation, and processing energy. Unborn humans do these things. So whatever the political and legal arguments may be, biologically there is no question that unborn people live. Thus, abortion is murder. And yet for 50 years, it was enshrined as a foundational right in our country. And we see all the turmoil about it today. Again, this evidence is a disregard for human life, an openness to violence in the service of personal convenience and politics. This is evil. Third, there is a normalization of mass murder. In the last 18 months, there have been 600 mass shootings in this country, 1,000 deaths and 4,000 injuries resulting. It's so commonplace now. It's not even registering on the news unless it happens to be extraordinarily murderous. There is so much carnage in our society and we are becoming desensitized to the horror. The destruction of a human life doesn't impact us like it should. And it's because on TV we see whole shows about serial killers who we're asked to sympathize with. The murder of God's image bearers has become something trite and commonplace. And fourth, there is an increasing trend in the West today to normalize euthanasia. Previously, euthanasia advocates said, well, assisted suicide is a legitimate choice for someone to die with dignity if they are suffering an incurable illness. And many Western societies bought into that idea. But over time, what happened in those societies that practiced euthanasia? Gradually, it became less and less an individual choice and more and more imposed by doctors upon patients without their consent because the doctor arbitrarily decided their life wasn't worth living. According to an official governmental report in Holland in 1990, over 10% of all deaths were a result of euthanasia. Over half were not consented to by the patient. A 2010 study showed that the same thing was still happening in Holland. In 2005, over half of all infant mortality cases in Belgium were killings performed by doctors without consulting the child's parents. And as time went by, the scope of euthanasia in these societies began to expand as well. It was no longer just for incurable illnesses. In Holland today, you can be euthanized for chronic depression, for blindness, for dementia. And as euthanasia increases in scope, it shapes society's views about whose life matters and whose doesn't. 
Canada has rapidly expanded its practice of euthanasia recently. How do Canadians value life now? Two weeks ago, a study was released showing that more than a quarter of Canadians favor euthanasia for the poor and homeless, and nearly half for the mentally ill. Friends, in the West, there is a collapsing sense of the value of human life. There is a collapsing sense that we should help those who need help. And friends, we see these things now. I promise they will get worse in coming years. And we need to know the Old Testament prophets said God pronounces woe upon the bloody city, upon societies that revel in violence. Friends, what we see in our society is the same thing that characterized Cain's. Yes, there may be scientific progress, but there is moral degradation. We need to value life. And so today I say if you have bought into the lie that human life doesn't matter sometimes, you need to know that it does. Value your life because you image God. Value everybody, whether they are poor or homeless or sick or disabled or unborn or psychologically troubled. And if you have bought into lies about this, friend, know that is grievous sin and God is angry about it. And repent, friend. Know there is forgiveness if you turn to Jesus and cast yourself upon his mercy. Believers, we need to care about human life in every way because God does. And where we can advocate for life, we should. And where we can help those who are troubled or who have sinned in this area by pointing them to Jesus, we need to do it. And let us boldly share the gospel because that's the only way we're going to change hearts and minds in this area. And let us resist any idea that we should abandon biblical ethics because, well, we're more enlightened than that now. Because secular progress does not indicate moral progress. But we come now to our last point, and this is quite brief which is that God intervenes in moral anarchy by forming a new people for his possession. Cain started a lineage that aligned with Satan. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. And Moses now rewinds the tape back to Adam and Eve. And he tells us now about another of their children. Look at verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. This name Seth is related to the word appointed. And as she names Seth, we see Eve has a change of perspective. She's not seeing herself as a creator now. She credits God alone. And in time, Seth begins a lineage that is quite different from the lineage of Cain. Verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now we're going to look at Seth's lineage next week. But here we see another fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Yes, many people align themselves with the serpent. Many people are the children of the devil. But Seth reminds us God has not abandoned humanity. God has appointed some people to be his, to be a people for his own possession. And just as God's name was absent from the lineage of, of Cain, we see God's name appears immediately in the lineage of Seth. Seth's descendants prayed and sought God by name. Now, what should we take from this? One of the big themes of Genesis is everybody falls into one category. You're either serving God or Satan. And so here we see Seth's lineage, which is godly, and Cain's, which is not. Now, today, after Jesus, we need to know this separation of humanity into two camps is not about descent. It's not about our background or our parents or our ethnicity. The only question is, what will you do with Jesus? Jesus is God who became a man, who died for our sins and rose again, 
who defeated Satan in principle at the cross and who will return and smash Satan's order. Friend, have you turned to Jesus and given him your sin? Or do you remain opposed to Jesus? And are you earning more and more of his fury for the day of judgment? I beg you, turn to Jesus and live. But if you do know Jesus, then friends, Ephesians 1 says he has chosen you out of this wicked world. And he has added you to the people for his own possession. Not because of anything you've done. Paul says he chose you from before the foundation of the world. Before you even existed. He loved you. He's adopted you into his family. He's given you the greatest of all inheritances, eternal life and the new creation. He has secured you with his indwelling spirit. And he has redeemed you, believing friend, from sin and forgiven all of your trespasses. And he has done this to the praise of his glory, that we might worship him and give him the praise that is due his name. And so, yes, it's a dark world, but God has intervened in the affairs of men and he is at work, and ultimately, he will triumph and he will reconcile the fallen cosmos to himself because of Jesus Christ. And so today, if you know Jesus, be encouraged and look to Jesus as the answer to the evil of this world. Trust him, praise him, give him the sacrifices that he is owed, including every one of your efforts and thoughts. And yes, friends, we will fail, but he gives us his grace. As we sang earlier, his mercy is more. And so, friend, today I, I, I pray that our allegiance would belong to the Lord, that our lives would show a sincere love for him, and that he might find our praises, our sacrifices, and our efforts acceptable expressions of worship to him. <laughs>